You know, if Nick Cage could do that acting anytime, he'd be much more of a star. (laughs) (laughs) You ever hear about that time he buried a saber-toothed cat skull in his backyard with Sean Bean? Mm, That's a tale. Oh, was it buried next to the Declaration of Independence and his acting career? Whoa! Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Um, my name is Trent, and you are listening to the all-new season of Salad, the AdWorks podcast, where we dish out your advertising news, industry interviews, and just general anecdotes um, each and every week. I'm happy to be joined here today with my good friend, Cole, who is replacing Zach on this show. Zach had to go off and graduate and get a real job, and now we are both here doing this podcast still in school. Um, excited to have you, Cole. You want to say hi to the masses? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, great, great to meet you all. You know, you're looking lovely today. Um, so as Trent said, uh, my name is uh, Cole DeMert. Um, I am also a marketing major uh, here at Arizona State. And I actually just stepped down as the president of AdWorks. So now that I'm done with that, uh, I got a little bit more free time to uh, work with uh, Trent on this podcast. So it should be pretty fun. Excited to bring some uh fun advertising know-how and we've got to talk to some really great people this year so i think it's going to be a really great show and i'm really excited to be here thanks trent yeah and um you know i think to get things started off today we'll just say a happy new year's eve to all of you today um welcome to the almost day before the new year and uh, before you go out have a good party tonight and all that stay safe of course uh we thought it'd be good Mm -hmm. to kind of recap and look back on the 2018 year of advertising. Um, now, Cole, a lot's been happening this year. Um, just to name a few things, um, the leader of what used to be the industry's largest holding company, WPP, yes, uh, was ousted. Martin, Martin Sorrell. Sorrell is his yes. name. <laughs> and uh, he's no longer with WPP. That happened at the beginning of this year. And he went off and started his own company, S4 Capital. Now, Cole and I have talked a lot about this. We're going to get to kind of, I want to hear your thoughts, Cole, here in a second. But just overview for those of you listening, in advertising, there used to be a lot of independent shops. And then a lot of people, kind of led by Martin Sorrell, started buying up different shops to offer all these different capabilities to big clients. You know, through mergers and acquisitions, they're able to kind of acquire new scale and new capabilities. And... What you kind of see early 2000s to now is that model has kind of gotten stale, gone by the wayside, and they're struggling to maintain profits. And interestingly enough, uh, Martin Sorrell decided to kind of do that same thing again. But he's saying it's not an agency. He's saying it's this new wave. And so his whole thing is he acquired this production company and is kind of building out a digital creative shop. He just acquired this digital ad buying company called Mighty Hive um, just this last month here in December. Um, And it'll be interesting to see what he does um, later this year. Now, Cole, we're also seeing a lot of mergers in the advertising agency world again, aren't we? Exactly. Um, so as Trent was just saying, you know, things are really changing and being shaken up in a big way. So, you know, the big four media companies, um, that really have dominated for really the past 20 or 30 years, even, uh, led by Martin Sorrell have really been breaking down, um, in a way that, uh, technology and culture and all of these things are changing so quickly that a lot of times it's really 
hard for these big companies to adapt and adjust quickly when their clients need the newest cutting edge creative or the newest trends or things that are really going to set them apart. It's really hard to promote change. And that's what these uh, uh, big media companies now are finding is that it's really hard for them to enact those things um, in a quicker and more technology driven climate. And so um, that's definitely something we're seeing with the big agencies is they're kind of uh, grasping at all of these different things and trying to figure out what's going to work uh, to help them compete because right and it is interesting too mm-hmm. not to kind of cut you off but like you always think i always think back to like parks and rec when leslie nope is excited about i think it's like the bad boy of the interior mm-hmm. you know who's like this rebel in the government and you kind of always wonder like who are these rivalries in like mm-hmm. our real life industries you know and it's, it's kind of interesting now yeah. seeing you know martin sorrell the former head of wpp calling out the new CEO of WPP as he's trying to do new mergers and trying to save that WP business that Martin Sorrell kind of left, you know, kind of running into the ground. So it's kind of interesting to see some new rivalries have kind of kicked up here too that mm-hmm. didn't previously exist. Exactly. And I think we're just going to be seeing new rivalries forming as these agencies really start to carve out the spaces that they're going to be working in. Um, and we'll kind of talk about this a little bit more later on, but um, kind of the rapid pace of technology and AI is changing the way that these businesses work. Um, you know, all these different media channels, social media, um, and all of these uh, different channels, you know, you can't just advertise on print and TV anymore. You know, that's vastly changed how these agencies have to operate. Not only that, one thing we're seeing that's also changing the industry in a big way is uh, the rise of consulting firms moving more into uh, the advertising agency space and the rise of big data. Right. Um, so, you know, as companies are working to adapt to all of these new technologies and things, we have the rise of big companies like Deloitte, McKinsey, um, that are starting to work in the advertising business a little bit. Um, you know, big data has really changed things and that the more metrics you have, the more more data you're able to collect about your client, um, you know, you're able to get a better picture of who they are. And consulting firms have seen this and they, they've started to be able to see that they can uh, take some of those uh, metrics and start to consult with them and kind of start to really usurp the ad business that we, we see, you know, performance marketing and all of those different things have really turned uh, have really gotten rid of a lot of the creative. And so these consulting agencies have been able to rise up with that power vacuum. Um, but, right. And, yeah. I, and I think something we've seen too um, is not only has there been this increase in digital, but also I think the way we know and recognize creative has changed too. I was just reading this interesting article in Fast Company earlier today that discussed how out of home, which for those of you who don't know, is essentially any billboard, any advertisement that's on display in the public, um, you know, outside of your home, essentially, um, has kind of changed too. what used to be something is you put up a billboard and you just have all these people walk by and get awareness has now changed in how it's being used where we mentioned earlier, Cole talked about how traditional, you know, advertising venues have, uh, you know, outlets have changed and are no longer as effective. What's interesting too, is they've changed in how they're effective, like out of home. Now, I think 25% of people who see an out of home ad then go and share it on Instagram to which you get a whole bunch of earned media where people that you didn't even pay to have them see are now seeing your ad too. Um, and I think this is like, you see this now in brand strategies like Spotify, who, 
you know, did a David Bowie tribute in a New York City um, subway terminal, you know, and do all of their year in review stuff at the end of every year. Now they're having um, people share their year in review to potentially be featured in Times Square. And then you think about all the people who will be post photos of that on Instagram stories, on Snapchat stories. You get all these new people who are seeing what was an out of home ad. So now these out of home ads are kind of leading into earned social media as well. So it's really interesting to see that transition that's kind of happened too. Exactly, exactly. And that's that's the crazy thing is the these huge network effects that we're seeing from social media sites and even just from online search and as people get more uh, kind of enamored with people's lives, you know, we have the rise of Instagram stories, obviously. Um, I mean, that's kind of old news at this point, but, you know, those are still growing and that's still going to be... Well, Facebook stories are the new news. I mean, if you talk to my aunt, she was very excited to post her first one this Christmas. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's pretty crazy. And obviously we get all those fun notifications of our friends posting their first <laughs> Facebook stories as well this year. Another fun part of 2018. Um, but what it's I think what you're saying, Trent, is really though interesting that we don't really know where the market's going to go in these ways. You know, you would predict that things like out of home and even uh, activations, mm-hmm. you know, would kind of be going out of style. But I mean, in many ways, 2018 was kind of almost the year of the activation in so many different ways. I right. mean, we had uh, really cool stuff at South by Southwest. I mean, as always, yeah. but still you had that amazing Westworld village uh, by Giant Spoon. And then, um, you know, obviously the diesel, the diesel uh, pop up. Oh, yeah. Diesel, yeah. too. Yeah. Tell them about oh, yeah, diesel. Oh, yeah. Diesel. Uh, another big one where basically they set up a uh, in the I guess, what would you call it? The uh, the knockoff district. What do they call it in New York? So they set up on mm-hmm. Canal Street, mm-hmm. yeah, which like is notoriously in, in New York where they sell all the fake items or the random kind of things that you wouldn't think you'd ever really need in your life and you'll buy it and you'll never really use it. But like it's just kind of that eclectic collection of goods, some knockoff and some, I guess, real maybe. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. And so just this area in New York where people are usually getting, uh, you know, uh, bootleg bags, you know, uh, you know, Chinese knockoff bags and things like that. And then they set up a diesel stand, but they switch the first two letters of diesel um and everyone thinks it's a really cheap knockoff and you know no one's even buying it they maybe sell you know 30 or 40 but then it comes out later that it was actually diesel and they made an entirely new line of misspelled items that then they then re- later released and these items were selling for thousands of dollars as these limited run pieces that Such a few a people, idea. yeah exactly and a few <laughs> people ended up getting them for about 20 bucks but you know it's not about those you know, 20, 50, or even a hundred people that got to see the activation. It's about all of us that are watching and, uh, ooing and awing at this amazing one, this amazing strategy, but two, um, just the fact that they were able to capitalize on something and use it in such a unique way. And I think that that's what we're really going to be seeing agencies have to do. And so Trent, I know that you worked at a, uh, an independent agency, uh, in New York over the summer. Right. And so how would you say that you guys kind of deal with creative in a way to kind of stand out from the pack and this kind of changed world? Yeah, that's a good question. I think and I want to ask you that same question. Mm-hmm. Cole and I kind of worked on the two different sides of the agency world this summer. He was in LA, I was in New York. Um, and he was at um, Team One, which is a publicist holding company owned shop. And uh, I was at Mother, which is uh, one of the bigger independent networks um, in the world, you know, up there with Wyden and Kennedy. And it was really interesting to to be there. It was a it was a blast. Loved working there, and just a really great creative environment. And I think the really interesting thing um, 
talking with um, a founder over there, you know, he said at the end of the day, if I mess up, you know, and we lose all of our business and we lose, you know, all of our employees at the end of the day, we still have this idea, you know, that that exists, this name that we can stand for and this collection of creative ideas and idealists that can keep working and we can build it back up and we can make our way back up. You know, our our collective is still there. And so when you worked there, there was this really interesting kind of bond between the employees of, you know, we're all here and we're supporting each other for the creative. We're going to make damn good creative that will help improve clients' businesses, you know? And I think working at that smaller independent shop was a really cool experience to kind of get that sense of like shared responsibility in the agency. Um, but you know, it's not like there weren't operation issues. It's not like there weren't issues that you'd have at any other business, but it is an interesting and really just cool environment to be working in, um, like that, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm kind of curious too. So like me being on the independent side, you know, we talk about these holding companies now, what's your take on that? Having worked at, you know, a publicist owned mm-hmm. shop, you know, and seeing what's going on with WPP. Yeah, of course. Um, and so I think that's really great. A lot of that stuff you said about that creative vision. I think that's really big. Um, and so, uh, basically, yeah. So as Trent said, um, I was working at a publicist, uh, kind of Saatchi operation, uh, in, uh, LA over the summer in Los Angeles, had a great, had a great time there. Um, the, the agency I work for is a pretty large agency, you know, um, I'd say over 800 people total at all of our offices. Um, but again, publicists originally spawned to work on Lexus, right? Exactly. But then they started taking on more clients and they kind of continued to grow. Exactly. So there are one shop agency to start with, with Lexus. And that's why they were created, um, kind of by Saatchi and publicists in order to kind of fill that role when Toyota was bringing Lexus over to the States. And so that was Mm -hmm. kind of their main goal. But then uh, since then, they've kind of been able to broaden their scope and expand outwards from that. So, um, but by doing that, it wasn't necessarily around necessarily a creative vision that uh, Trent was saying, but kind of as we were saying before, these different agencies and the large holding companies kind of start to suit different needs. Okay. Um, Not because they don't have a creative vision at all. So uh, we had, you know, kind of launching the remarkable, our focus is on affluent brands and luxury brands. And so when looking at those sorts of things, um, you know, you're coming at it from a certain perspective, a Lexus kind of perspective or the perspective of a Lexus buyer um, or a luxury buyer, you know, in the space and affluence in a way is changing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that was kind of the focus of our agency. Um, and it was definitely a lot more of a stratified system, a lot less flat than uh, Trent's experience, um, just because of the sheer volume of people and the sheer size of the client. And, you know, yeah, and it, to kind of contextualize it, it, it seems like, you know, you'd have like a smaller shop where each of their verticals are kind of in-house and they're kind of owning each department. But maybe in this sense, like Publicis, is the larger agency and each of these smaller agencies that they've acquired over the years kind of fit their different industry verticals that they go after as a business. Would you say that's kind of how it felt? Definitely. And so that's, I mean, that's kind of the wider mm. picture, you know, but you right. know, when we're, when you're in the agency, it's not, you know, people are still coming yeah. up with really creative ideas and doing really cool things. I don't want to say that you cannot do yeah. that at a big agency because that is definitely something that does happen. Yeah. It's just like industry focused in a sense. But, but yeah, but exactly. You know, 
know, it's a whole, it's more of a business objective in a way uh, uh-huh. for Publicis. Um, but, right. you know, you're still doing that in really creative ways. There's still really smart and creative people working there. A ton of really smart, creative people working there. But, oh, <laughs> um, but yeah, but, you know, when you're managing a client that's as big as Lexus or a huge global brand and you're doing all of their business. So we were doing, you know, every, every layer of production was in house. Uh, we did all the creative, we did all the strategy, we did all the media mm-hmm. too, was another big part of that analytics, all of that fell under our roof. And so what you're going to see and kind of what Trent has kind of talked about as well is the bigger agencies, the bigger, uh, you know, media companies are able to handle those sorts of loads. They have the resources and then the business objective to kind of go after those different verticals and get a large amount of business from these really big companies. Whereas Trent, right. so as I said, you know, we were working on everything from production, uh, you know, to, uh, to again, to media buying, uh, you know, to everything in between. And so what was kind of the scope of your work then at, uh, at your independent over the summer? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think it really depends because like I'm at an independent shop now where, you know, production and media are in house too. Um, so they own the whole process. So it depends on the shop. But like when I was at Mother, we didn't have a media department per se. Um, we did have an in-house production company and that kind of operated where they would do some of the the work. And then sometimes we'd outsource it to another production company like Biscuit. Um, you know, and then like with media, you know, we would essentially partner with Dentsu um, for the client I was working on, which was Stella Artois. And it was interesting, like, and that was something new that I was exposed to too, where you, a lot of these bigger brands will kind of do essentially what a holding company is doing in that sense, where they will say, okay, this agency is responsible for this aspect of our marketing communications. So at Mother, you know, we were the global and US creative and strategy lead for Stella Artois. And then we'd partner with other agencies such as Dentsu to do media buying, Vayner Media to do social media, I think it was 3PL to do PR, um, you know, and you kind of had these different functions. So that was interesting in a sense too. You had your internal kind of creative strategic team, and then you had your broader cross-agency team that you'd be working with in different companies. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And I think as we're seeing, you know, from the changed media environment, you know, we're going to be seeing these things either need to be broken out or brought all into one place. And those are kind of the two polar opposites that we're seeing here. And, you know, again, back in the day, it could have just been print and, uh, you know, print and TV or something like that. But now, I mean, when you have, you have social media and that's becoming even bigger and bigger. And, you know, obviously then you guys had to outsource that and where analytics, uh, becomes a bigger and bigger factor in making decisions and, and in strategy. And so you kind of might have to start outsourcing that as well. And so it's about giving your client the proper edge. Exactly. And I think with brands, you'll see, especially in 2018, there are a lot of brands that wanted to bring stuff in-house and that's in-house meaning like they wanted to take their they wanted to no longer outsource their creative marketing they wanted to Mm -hmm. take it inside their company do it themselves Mm -hmm. and i think um you know i think a reason for that too is because they were so fragmented working across so many different agencies that it became easier to just work with people they at their company already um and so I think mm-hmm. you're right. I think you will see no, exactly. creative shops try and integrate internally a little bit more to create more offerings. And I think holding companies may have a leg up on that because of their more greater scalability and greater share of resources. I know 
Cole and I and anyone listening mm-hmm. to ASU knows about scalability because our president at ASU, <laughs> Michael Kerr, talks about it so much. But it is true that you know the more resources you can acquire, the quicker it is to scale up. Um, mm-hmm. But I suspect like, the smaller startups too will have a bit yeah. of a lead on the creative and the strategic side just because when you're a smaller company or when you're a more flatter organizational structure, it's a lot easier to implement new changes. You know, you can kind of fail fast and figure out what's working and what's not as opposed to, you know, at a larger place with a lot more like hierarchical structures. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And, you know, we're kind of starting to see agencies look at this problem and how do they solve it and how do they make themselves even more competitive in, you know, in 2019. And, you know, again, so so, talking about publicists here, I'm going to talk talk about the elephant in the room here with Marcel. Exactly. Exactly. And well, we're, we are not working with it yet, but, uh, mm-hmm. it will soon be unveiled. Um, they plan to have it to 90% of all of their employees by 2020. Okay. But, um, cool. basically what Marcel is kind of aimed to do here is, you know, we were talking about how all these agencies kind of start or the big media companies have had to kind of use their different agencies in different ways, either for different verticals or to do different things right. uh, for their clients. So obviously Publicis owns, uh, you know, certain companies that would be focused, you know, maybe on the, you know, the data side or the media buying side and those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And then we're going to see more specialization uh, through Marcel. So Marcel is basically an integrated AI tool that Publicis has uh, worked over the past year pretty much to, uh, kind of implement within all of their different agency structure and kind of bring together all of the collective knowledge within all of the agencies within uh, Publicis. And, okay. you know, when we're talking when we're talking knowledge, this is billions, billions of files. This is, you know, this is everything. I believe, I believe it's somewhere around, I mean, there are hundreds of companies and 80,000 uh employees worldwide working for Publicis. And so it's taking all of this knowledge and aggregating it. And then what it does there is it goes a step further. So it basically will help, uh, help companies that are using Marcel and help the agencies, uh, to kind of land business and go to the right places with their business. Um, so essentially mm-hmm. there is, uh, so this is reading from Publicis themselves, um, okay. with more than 80,000 people and over 1200 entities spanning 200 specialties and thousands of clients, the group has vast amounts of data. So basically they're trying to use this data, uh, to figure out where, uh, these relationships should be made. So maybe if there's a company that, you know, has a big media, uh, by that it needs to do, you know, they would, they would, Marcel would help them find the agency that would be able to specifically help them. And so it's basically trying to take all the resources of Publicis and make them accessible to anyone trying to work with, uh, the company as a whole. Right. So basically using AI and all of these integrated, uh, data technologies in order to kind of close the gaps and, uh, sort of make Publicis almost one entity in a way that can be then, uh, you know, kind of accessed and used to its, to its greatest potential. Right. Um, At least that's um, the, that's the thought. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, um, you know, technology is that buzzword that, uh, people will use and throw around and it's like, okay, we get the tech continues to improve, but people always throw out stuff and it's like, is that really feasible in the next couple of years? And, um, you know, we actually got the chance to talk to a man who 
not only believes that's feasible, but is working to make it feasible each and every day and is testing new technologies. Uh, we had the pleasure of sitting down with John Rich, who's the VP of Future X Labs, um, which is essentially kind of an innovation um, sector inside another publicist owned shop called Moxie, uh, based out of Atlanta. And, um, you know, we had a blasting down with him and I think you're really going to enjoy listening to him too. So we're going to take you over to that right now. Mm-hmm. Enjoy. So today we're joined here, um, by John Rich and, um, I actually met John, um, at a student advertising conference, um, run by the AAF, um, a few months back in San Jose. Um, and he talked about AI and, um, kind of how that is going to impact the future, not only of advertising, but of work and society. And uh, I was just kind of blown away. So very excited to have him on the uh, podcast today. Uh, thank you, John, for joining us. Um, and I guess to get started, do you mind just kind of giving an overview of, you know, Moxie and FutureX Labs, as well as what you're currently working on over there? Yeah, that would be great. So the Future X Labs, what we we essentially do two key things. The first mm-hmm. thing is we try to identify the emerging technologies that are going to have the biggest impact on consumers' behavior in the next two to five years. Okay. And I guess one of the um, the principles at the lab we use is this idea of law of accelerating returns, which is that technology is not advancing in a linear way; it's advancing mm-hmm. in an exponential way. It's mm-hmm. it's a um, uh, hypothesis that Ray Kurzweil, who's currently the director of uh, engineering at Google, mm-hmm. put forth decades mm-hmm. ago, and that really changes your perspective because if you believe that technology is advancing that quickly the the timelines become almost surreal in some ways. Right. I know our clients yeah. sometimes feel that way. <laughs> um, and then because of that, because these technologies are probably going to have a bigger impact faster than most of our clients think, we will bring the technologies into the lab, usually when they're still in a development stage. Okay. Uh, as uh-huh. an example, the Magic Leap glasses are one of the first mixed reality um, glasses or, or headset that's currently available. Mm-hmm. And we will build prototypes using that technology that have plausible or what we think are plausible business <laughs> use cases. Mm-hmm. So clients can both you know, get their hands on the technology and see some potential directions uh, where it could apply to their business. So that that's probably the primary thing we do in the lab. And then mm-hmm. the second thing we do is we... Uh, create and host emerging technology conferences. Okay. And uh, our next one coming up is going to be here in Atlanta at the Georgia World Congress Center. We're hoping for about a thousand attendees. Oh, wow. And nice. the, <laughs> the topic area is called the next 10. So we uh-huh. will specifically be looking at what this exponentially advancing technology, what kind of future not only could it create, but we want to ask the question, what kind of future should we create? Right. And um, yeah, that, that's going to be on April 30th, 2019. Very cool. Awesome. Yeah, that's a, a good point to bring up too. I remember at the uh, conference, there were some people who were asking about Black Mirror and you had a good point that uh, Black Mirror does a good job of predicting what would happen if uh, 
people make the wrong decisions with technology. So it's kind of cool then that it's like there are conferences about like people figuring out how to best use the technology that's developing to like better society as a whole. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, exciting to hear about. Um, kind of moving on to AI, um, we're just kind of curious to hear from you. Um, what do you think the impact of, you know, AI will be on advertising as far as, you know, current advertising jobs go? And, um, you know, is it kind of changing up a lot of different departments and how they function? Um, is it kind of changing how departments will kind of work and what the jobs will look like in the field? Yeah. So I guess first answer, absolutely. And I can discuss some of the specific implications. Yeah, and that'd be things great. that are already happening with artificial intelligence within marketing communications. I, I would just like to say uh, to start off, though, uh, my feeling and obviously a number of people that are much smarter than me uh, <laughs> feeling is that AI is the most powerful technology that we have ever created right. and with okay. that has incredible <laughs> possibilities opportunities yeah. maybe to solve some of the biggest problems we're faced with mm -hmm. and of course some people quite famously elon musk yeah. stephen hawking <laughs> yeah. you know bill gates yeah, uh, consider it also probably the number one threat to our very existence so it is an interesting technology, <laughs> right. um, uh -huh. to say the least. But to focus it more on marketing communications, I think it was a Salesforce um, survey that they released earlier this year where they were saying already somewhere around 50% or so of marketers are using artificial intelligence in some way in their business right now. Uh -huh. And I believe they forecasted that another 27 to 30 percent was going to adopt it this coming year. Uh -huh. So, uh -huh. you know, that, that's a pretty extraordinary uh, rate of adoption right. within our industry. Definitely. And really, this is coming from uh, two main areas that, that we're seeing as we think about uh, building prototypes. Because I, I should also say that probably about 75 percent of the prototypes we're building right now uh -huh. either completely use artificial intelligence like they are the the primary technology technology used or oh, they wow. support the technology mm -hmm. the prototype that we're using in some way so um yeah in in the case of the the first area where we've seen the first adoption everyone has heard about big data and how important data is to marketers mm -hmm. in general right. and what has been happening is that the amount of data that is being created, you guys have maybe heard this headline um, that something like 90% of all data that has ever existed uh -huh. in the world has been created in the last 24 months. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and what's interesting about Crazy. that is what I was surprised by, this has been true now for decades. Uh -huh. And so uh -huh. essentially we are creating data at the rate of um, tenfold increase every 24 months. Wow. And it, it is impossible for us uh, on our own to be, to be able to process this amount of data. There's just no way humans... Uh, could ever really make sense right. of this data and take actions, particularly you know in real time, which way, which we have mm -hmm. to do now as marketers. Right, exactly. 
So I think that has been the number one driver, at least here as I look at Moxie, which is also part of the broader publicist group, mm-hmm. global marketing communication network. I would say the num- the first place that artificial intelligence has been adopted has been in the data science area okay. uh, of our industry. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. I was, uh, over the summer, I was at a publicist company as well. And, and Marcel was all, was the big talk of, uh, kind of, <laughs> of, of publicists at that time. So it's, it's definitely interesting to see these technologies really taking root. It's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And so I would think it's the data, you know, making sense of the data, taking action on the data. That is the very first place. And then you're starting to see, you know, these, we're doing it a, a bit here at Moxie where we're using machine learning to uh, help create messages okay. dynamically. Because the other, the other thing uh-huh. that our industry is going to have to do is it's going to have to, we've always heard on the one-on-one understanding your particular needs at this particular moment to create the most effective marketing actions. And to do that, obviously, again, a human being is not going to create a million different versions (laughs) of messages uh, to be able to, you know, put them out there at the right moment. And so, but machines are really, really good at that. Um, And you guys may have seen, it got quite a bit of media coverage. Uh, Lexus partnered with uh, IBM Watson recently to create yes. a, uh, a TV commercial. It's being billed as the first TV commercial that was scripted completely by right. an AI. Um, and what was fascinating about it, and I think this kind of points to part of the mm-hmm. future of marketing, is what they did is they, they fed the system uh, 15 years of some of the best automotive advertising, award-winning right. advertising that had been created mm-hmm. by humans. Yeah. As a, as a training set, essentially. And then they gave it other data and information to work with. And it generated a script that um, the humans, I mean, there's this was, again, this is another key part I'd like to say is that I think where we're headed is this okay. collaboration or this idea of cobots hmm. where most mm-hmm. of us in most of our jobs moving forward, we will be collaborating with machine intelligence. And sometimes it will take physical form in terms of robotics where it'll be embodied. But, you know, the Lexus commercial, I think, points to this future where the AI created the script, the idea, and then the human writers, art directors, uh, film director, they then crafted Mm -hmm. the spot. Um, Mm -hmm. And ironically, in the TV spot, this very advanced automobile, which of course Mm -hmm. has a computer in it, becomes sentient <laughs> and, and, and starts to act on its own, obviously yeah. in positive uh-huh. ways. But um, I thought that was very, right. you know, meta <laughs> that one of the first AI, you know, sort of scripted TV commercials is about an AI yeah. becoming conscious. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely leads you back down to the uh, super, super AI track and gets you a little bit worried. But it's it's super exciting to hear about the possibilities here. So do you think, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Okay. So do you think, um, you know, do you think stuff like that um, is going the way of becoming more commonplace then? Or do you think like having AI kind of create or direct a film, is is that more of going to kind of be a publicity stunt for brands? Or do you think it could get to the point where it is effective enough that it is that 
like cobot partnership um you know down the road and if so how far down the road do you think that is yeah i would estimate that and again i'm going on this exponential law of accelerating terms time frame that right, within right. 5 years probably the vast majority of us working not only in marketing but in in most um, jobs at that point, because jobs are going to change dramatically, even within this five, five uh -huh. year time frame, right. we will be working in a symbiotic relationship. And, and this is not, this is not a, uh, you know, a wild statement. Cause if you think about it, probably most of us now, um, spend dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, we're interacting with artificial intelligences in our lives. Right. You know, every time we shop on Amazon, every time we get Waze or um, another driving app to give us driving directions, yeah. um, you know, we are interacting on a daily basis with machine intelligence at this point. And, you know, it happens incrementally. And then, you know, suddenly, you know, our coworker is not human, <laughs> but it happened in this kind of gradual way. So I expect that to happen within the next five years. And right. particularly related to machine intelligence, I think the biggest uh, thing that will affect our industry, and again, within this five-year time frame, uh -huh. is that I think most marketing will be machines creating the marketing messages and delivering it to machines. <laughs> so right. most advertising or most marketing will be machine to machine based. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll explain why. Sure, um, of course. Again, if you look today, most purchases made by most people, um, mm. they don't want to be making them. Right. So <laughs> if you think about the bulk of purchases, the the cat food, the toilet paper, the paper towels, the dish detergent, um, all of these sort of commodity items, these household items that we're, we're using on a daily or weekly basis, mm -hmm. no one really wants to, you know, go to the grocery store and try to remember, are they about to run out of butter or yeah. coffee creamer and all this? So most purchases are uninteresting. And if we could turn that over to an AI we trusted, uh -huh. we would probably gladly do that. And I know in some ways we've kind of begun that process with like Amazon subscribe and save where, cool. you know, things just show up right. on a, <laughs> on a regular scheduled basis. But, um, you know, the, the number of smart devices in the average U S household is expanding really dramatically also. So mm -hmm. things like smart speakers, security cameras. Uh, you guys may have seen there's, um, there's a new very small robot called uh, Vector that just got released. It's about $250. Mm -hmm. It has facial recognition. Oh, wow. It um, is aware of its environment. Uh -huh. It can charge itself. You know, it can do a lot <laughs> of things cool. and yeah. it has a real personality. And I'm using that as an example where if a machine intelligence that could take the images from our smart cameras, it could start to see as we come into the house and we unpack mm -hmm. our groceries, it could understand and keep an inventory count. These small and expensive robots like this Anki Vector, yeah. as an example, can be monitoring 
you know, what we're using, what we're eating for breakfast, you know, as we prepare our meals, it can keep track. Um, and so what I think is going to happen is, again, a lot of these ongoing items that we use on a, on a daily mm-hmm. basis, we're going to turn over a lot of those purchase decisions to um, mm-hmm. our machines. And we'll want them, though, to make sure that they get the things we like mm-hmm. the most, get them at the right time. And we want to make sure that they're negotiating the best price for us. And I think once we have those sort of those three metrics of trust in place, we're going to turn over the bulk of our purchase purchases to machines. And that's why I think a lot of marketing is going to become an automated mm-hmm. um, system, mm-hmm. if you will. Gotcha. It's it's interesting to see that already. And I mean, even when going to the soup, the mar- uh, supermarket or something like that, you know, I'll get a receipt for an item that I know I'm going to purchase the next time I come to the to the store. And so it's interesting to see these AIs already kind of, or these algorithms at least already starting to learn. So for students that are kind of going to be entering the marketing space, uh, I know you're saying that a lot of that's going to be automated now. How do we kind of hack into that system? What's going to be sort of the marketer's role in that? And how would kind of students start to prepare themselves for that? Yeah, so in some ways, I think this is the one of the most exciting times, well, in general, to be... Um, you know, entering right. careers. And I think in particular for the marketing space, because I think what this means is that a lot of the the repetitious, the the, the basic blocking and tackling of, of marketing and advertising is going to be automated. And you can see this in other industries mm-hmm. too. You know, it started probably first in areas like manufacturing where more and more of the manufacturing process became automated. I think we're now seeing that with quote unquote white collar jobs with uh, jobs that that take human creativity, and the reason why I think it's exciting for students to move into this industry now is that the coolest stuff is going to be what um, humans are going to be working yeah. on, mm-hmm. right? So if if a lot of this very transactional um, process is, is automated, we're going to need to focus on the the really the interesting experiences how can we have a brand start to activate its brand values in the world uh in exciting ways so that that could be more like physical events mm-hmm. that could be more of ideas around social actions that get communicated within social spaces um i think if you look at a brand um you know originally brands were created if we go back decades or even centuries because, you know, a lot of products and services weren't safe or effective Uh and brands became shorthand promises that you would get a quality um, product or service. And now I think as we moved into modern advertising and marketing, brands have gone beyond that promise of just delivering that, that product or that service at a at a high quality level, but brands usually stand for bigger principles or ideas, uh-huh. right? So um, I can use Delta as an example. Okay. That's one of our clients. You know, Delta. The whole idea behind flight and travel isn't you know people 
aren't buying Delta plane tickets because they want to travel in a giant aluminum <laughs> tube at 30,000 feet right. going 600 miles an hour, right? That That's not the reason why you buy a plane ticket. It's because um, you are going to spend time with your family or you're going to um, – a meeting where things that are going to enrich your career, yeah. right? Or you're going to solve problems for, for a client, right? There's destinations and travel have these, um, these human drivers mm-hmm. behind it. And if Delta can share those stories uh-huh. of, you know, sort of why we fly, you know, and make it more accessible, more affordable, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, it enriches people's lives. And I think every brand, if you look at it, there's a bigger idea behind why that company exists, uh-huh. why that brand right. uh, is structured that way. And I think that's the thing that people entering our industry now are going to need to focus on. Mm-hmm. They're going to need to focus on mm-hmm. those bigger brand, not only the stories, but but creating actions in the world. Because I think businesses will now have more resources to to act right. the way they've um, the principles under which they they were founded. So yeah, exactly. that's why yeah. I'm I'm so excited uh, about the industry. You know, I've been in it for a long time now, and I think, as I said before, this is probably the most potentially creative and exciting <laughs> time to be working in the industry. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I mean, and it's exciting too, just to think of like that opportunity to kind of offload some of the more menial or time-consuming tasks to focus in on the creative? I mean, I'm curious too for your your thoughts. Do you think that um, as far as advertising and marketing goes, is it really going to kind of um, boil down to, you know, creatives, you know, client services and, and kind of strategists that are working or what functions do you think will kind of become automated and what departments do you think will still kind of be functioning um, in some capacity? Well, I think that... The, the, and I guess this is a, a point I would make to people, even if they're not interested in pursuing this as a key focus in their career, right. is I think understanding the way that these systems work, uh-huh. some of the basic principles around uh, how machine learning processes data, mm-hmm. and, and there, there's dozens and dozens of free courses online from top universities in the world that you know, are, are, as I said, completely free or at, at a very low cost. So I would say that being at least literate about machine learning, about artificial intelligence, about data processing, image classification, some of these core um, areas of machine learning mm-hmm. would benefit anybody, no matter if you're, you know, an art director or you're a strategist. Right. Um, so I would say that that's really critical for everybody who's working in the industry. And then in terms of the roles moving forward, I do think there's going to be a continued need for strategists or like system strategists, mm-hmm. people that can kind of um, understand the brand's communications and actions mm-hmm. at a systems level. Uh, right. right. So advertising agencies, you still see this a little bit, but you're seeing it begin to uh, come together exactly. you know, where brands would give one agency their social business, give another agency their, their core brand communication business, right. another agency their, their you know, CRM. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you're going to start to see is these things come back together where the okay. really successful agencies are going to be able to synthesize 
a brand's um, impact and communications across mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of platforms, all kinds of channels, and mm-hmm. see it in a more holistic way. Now, there, I think there'll still be specialists mm-hmm. that you know are really good at at certain things, and they'll be brought in. But um, I think there'll be a lot of value to see things at a systems level moving forward, because a lot of this, as we talked about earlier, a lot of this blocking and tackling, kind of this mundane stuff is going to be, you know, more and more automated. Right. Definitely. It's it's definitely cool to see the systems view because AI really does allow us to expand the scope in, in so many really drastic ways. Are there any current tech kind of things that are coming up or any sort of innovations that you've seen recently that have caught your attention to say that's the future or that is going to be driving the industry in the future? Yeah, I would say that right now, the thing I'm most excited about and what where we're working on prototypes, I'll, I'll give you guys another example. We've created a prototype called um, AI Against Humanity. <laughs> and um, so we kind of played off the, uh, the cards against humanity yeah, yeah. idea to create a, a, a game experience. Mm-hmm. And what we did is starting about a year ago, the, the current... Um, we began by training a convolutional neural network with the objective of making it indistinguishable from a human uh, being. Okay. So, to so that it could carry on a conversation uh, or interact with humans in a way that they couldn't distinguish that it was a, that it wasn't a human. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So we played off this idea of you guys may have heard the Turing test, yeah, yeah, yeah which exactly. is <laughs> And what we wanted to try to do is we wanted to try to you know. Uh, achieve or exceed the Turing test, which is if one third of humans don't know they're talking to a, a machine intelligence, then you've quote unquote passed the Turing test. Right. Mm-hmm. This was a sort of a, an experiment, a mental experiment that Alan Turing proposed. Um, yeah. I think back World War, World War II, II timeframe. Right? Yeah. yeah, back in the invention of the computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so what we did is we trained this convolutional neural network, and then we also gave it access to retrieval-type databases like uh, Wolfram Alpha, which is okay. one of the largest databases for mathematical scientific mm-hmm. information. <laughs> and Takes me we, back to calculus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it actually, it should be able to help you if you have any calculus problems. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. oh wait, that's, that's how I know it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then what we did is we, we created a, initially a game format that was text-based, and so you start the game um you're playing against player a and b one of them is not human the other one is a human uh and then each player gets to ask any question you want Mm. anything and uh, the other two players answer and then each person gets a term asking their question and then after the three rounds you need to determine who is the human Mm. essentially and We have consistently, since we first created it, uh, we've been able to exceed, quote unquote, the Turing test level oh, wow. of a third of people misidentifying who the, uh, who the AI is. And so, and of course, it keeps every time someone plays it, mm-hmm. um, it gets smarter, right? right? It learns the yeah. kind of questions that humans ask and the kind of answers they give. And the reason why we did this is twofold. One is we wanted to show that you know chatbots up to this point have had very narrow capabilities mm-hmm. and we wanted to show clients and people in general that machine intelligence is getting wider and wider in terms of the capabilities that it could handle um, the kinds of problems it could handle right. dynamically on its own mm-hmm. and the, and then maybe the most important thing is 
you guys have maybe heard there's been a lot of media coverage recently about bias in AI systems. Oh, yeah. yeah. And these, yeah, and these mm-hmm. can have huge impacts. Yeah. Um, I think most famously recently, Google turned off um, the AI system it was using to identify candidates for new jobs because they found out it was um, um, discounting women. Oh, at a higher rate than yeah. men. And there's been multiple, uh, Facebook has multiple lawsuits because it allowed people to po- post jobs that would exclude people over a certain age, uh-huh. or um, it would even exclude people of a certain race uh-huh. because of uh-huh. how demographics were distributed by different um, zip code right. areas. Uh-huh. And okay. yeah, and these could have huge impacts because Artificial intelligence is going into everything. Our legal system, it's determining you know, who gets parole, who gets a loan, uh, who gets a job. So this could have huge implications, especially if there's bias um, in the systems. And so with AI against humanity, what we, the most important thing we wanted to show is the way to develop a artificial intelligence system that interacts with us is by us training it sharing our values, mm-hmm. um, sharing, pointing the kinds of, of behaviors we want it to learn. Okay. Uh, we think that that is a way forward. Now, when I say that, <laughs> you guys may remember, I think it was about a year ago when Microsoft released a chatbot called Tay, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. learned based upon people's behavior, and it immediately became um, you know, racist oh, and yeah. profane. <laughs> and, yeah. Now, I think you know that was more of you know, an issue of how we tend to behave on social media right, channels exactly. sometimes, you know, we have, we think we have this sort of, you know, we're not identified. We have this anonymity that we can get away, you know, right, with yeah. sort uh-huh. of trolling these systems. So, um, but, but I do think it's important that, you know, the way I think we get to a unbiased or as close to an unbiased system as possible is through direct interaction. And it has to be the right people interacting too. Mm -hmm. Um, Another great example of this, and you guys may have heard the story, uh, here in Atlanta, we have a big event called um, Comic-Con. Or I'm sorry, uh, Dragon-Con, which is gaming and cosplay thousands and thousands of people from around the world will come to this event uh-huh. and um a gentleman was staying in one of the down hotel downtown hotels uh for the event oh, right. okay. and he was using the the bathroom yeah. and he went to wash his hands and when he put his hands under the the soap and the water system which was n- no touch um neither one activated and he happened to be there um a friend of his was with him and he had lighter color skin yeah. and he went and he waved his hands under these things and they, and everything worked <laughs> and he posted it on social media because they tested multiple of these units in the bathroom. Right. And what they realized is that the, the systems were reflecting light back from skin, but if the skin color was too dark, not enough light was being reflected mm-hmm. back into the systems. And, you know, these systems were coming, I think, from an engineering company, I want to say in Germany or something, where they didn't have diverse engineers. So they Mm -hmm. never, it wasn't that they intended it, it's that they just didn't have the diversity to test it or develop it in a way that it would work for everyone. And I think that's a key thing about our industry in general, but about as we we work more and more with artificial intelligence, Uh is if we have 
diversity, um, diversity in life experiences within how we grew up, our racial identities, our sexual identities, then we are going to create more robust systems that help more people in more ways. And I think that's a really critical thing, as I say, you know, for our industry, you know, I'll speak to our industry specifically, Uh having that diversity will make us uh, better and stronger over time. Mm-hmm. I think that's so incredibly important. I recently read a book called Weapons of Math Destruction, and it was talking about how algorithms can basically kind of uh, cause this societal impact in some of the ways that you'd mentioned, you know, and even paroles and things like that. They, you know, control exactly. financial systems and things. And I think to your point, diversity is so incredibly important because the more kind of stopgap measures or the more things that you can do to protect, a, you know, a minority class or yeah. other sorts of, you know, outliers, so to speak, the more robust and that system is going to be so incredible, incredibly important. Definitely. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, one of the things here, uh, Moxie Publicis has in at a global level, they have been very aggressive for years and years and years and now about driving diversity mm-hmm. in all forms within the, the company. And, I do think it's what you said. It's not only it's protecting minority groups, but the thing that I've seen, and I think this has shown up in in the statistics and in the research that's been done, is that an organization that has all those minority perspectives and um, way of seeing the world and skills they've developed creates a literally a richer organization, one that's more profitable, that's more dynamic that can understand more problems and come up with better solutions. So this is not only a thing that is right, but I think this is a thing that is good, uh, good from a, from a business standpoint, you know, so it's a win-win in my mind. Yeah, exactly. And it's just such an interesting That's story, right. that one. I think I remember you mentioning that at the the conference too, that, you know, you can think you have all the right stop gaps measures in place to kind of like make sure that doesn't happen. But it, it, at the base level, if your inputs, you know, say as the people working at that factory aren't diverse or aren't having that broad perspective, it can still kind of uh, create issues down the line, um, which is just kind yeah, of wild. That unconscious bias exactly. is, you know, very, yeah, very dangerous for businesses and industries especially when it gets applied to an ai that's filtering through millions of people or something like that that's exactly you know and that's why i think it's created so much conversation right because Mm -hmm. it isn't it isn't an individual that might affect you know a dozen people or even a hundred people that's bad enough but if you put a system in place like the google recruiting system and if that is you know excluding women at a higher rate than that that could be affecting tens of thousands of people right Mm -hmm. definitely so i guess kind of going one way and maybe to kind of end our conversation a little bit with a sci-fi note to it. Do you feel like, I know you're, I've, I don't know if you've watched Westworld before, but there's a lot of talk about AI in that and just how these machines will start to kind of, or these algorithms, AIs will start to kind of know us better than we know ourselves. Do you feel like that that's coming as well? Do you feel like that's maybe a focal point 10, 15 years from now or? Yeah, so I'm a little bit more aggressive in the time frame. What I what I think will happen, um, 
I guess I would align my values closest with people like Ray Kurzweil and Elon Musk mm-hmm. is both of those gentlemen. So in the case of Ray Kurzweil uh, at Google, I believe he's in the group called Calico, which okay. um, is working on extending lifespans or health spans, oh, right. I should say. And I know one of the things that Kurzweil has talked about a lot is this idea of nanorobots mm-hmm. that so you could imagine tens of thousands or even millions of these um, cell-sized robots mm-hmm. living uh-huh. inside of us. They would be doing things to keep us healthy, doing cellular repair, looking for early signs of disease. But they would also, much like our smartphones or any of our connected devices, they'd have radios in them and they'd be able to communicate to the internet, to artificial intelligence. So essentially, they would be connecting uh-huh. us um, to to artificial intelligence, which at the current rate will exceed human intelligence. And again, there's a lot of debate on the time frame. Kurzweil believes it will happen that we'll reach general artificial intelligence uh-huh. by 2029. Wow. So <laughs> 10 years from now. Elon Musk is um, in a similar um, space where he's created a, mm-hmm. a, a mm-hmm. he has many companies, uh, Tesla, SpaceX, but he has a company called Neuralink. Yes. And they're yeah. working on neural mesh. Wow. This would be, uh-huh. if you can imagine um, a fabric like mesh, it would be probably folded up into a very small form. It would be um, put through your skull, right. and this mesh would integrate with your neocortex basically creating a brain-machine interface. Mm -hmm. Essentially, where we're headed is, I think a lot of people are focused on this idea of brain-machine interfaces. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is that those people believe there's no way we can compete with machine intelligence. Um, Right? Like we, right now, our intelligence works at a uh, biochemical and at an evolutionary speed where we can't make our neocortexes any bigger or we would be killing our mothers in birth, <laughs> right? So, and, you know, and that process uh, would take, you know, mm-hmm. tens of thousands, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of years or longer. Yeah, exactly. And so the way that these technologists are focused is by connecting us to artificial intelligence, by connecting us to the internet, which also uh, Dr. Michio Kaku believes will happen, oh, yeah. that the internet will be replaced by the brain net oh, wow. uh, in the future, that that is the way we will, um, we will survive and thrive because we will essentially become hybrid with um, our technology. And again, um, and I know we're probably running out of time, but I just yeah. want to say this is not strange to our species, right? Because if you think about it, from the moment we first used technology, you know, when, when probably our ancestors um, saw a stick on the ground and they picked up that stick because they realized they could then knock down yeah. fruit that was out of reach mm-hmm. otherwise, we began to extend our capabilities through technology. Yeah. And it's just now we've reached the point where we've actually maybe made the thing that's made us most distinct and most successful, which is we've created intelligence 
that, as I say, will likely exceed our own yeah. at some mm-hmm. point in the future. And some people think very, very soon. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I think you had the example too, last time we spoke of, you know, while that may sound like something that's kind of like crazy merging with a machine or, you know, with neural nets, but you had the example too, I believe of, um, you're currently kind of doing that in a way now when you put, um, phone numbers in the contacts list on your phone, because there's no way you could remember all of them just on your own. And you're kind of offloading that kind of memory to a separate device. Um, is that kind of a fair example, right? Yeah. And Ray Kurzweil, I think, was the first person I saw that used this as an example, which is he says we're already extending our memories, our our brain functions. To your, to your point, we don't know all of our friends' email address and mobile numbers and mailing right. address, right? Mm-hmm. We kind of yeah. offload all that information into the cloud. And in some ways, the cloud is already an extension of our memories. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, getting stuck on a, a calculus problem. Mm-hmm. Well, now, yeah. <laughs> you know, we can, you know, you know, hey, say, hey, series or say, hey, Siri or hey, Alexa, or, you know, one of the many mm-hmm. AIs and they can answer almost any, you know, mathematical question that exists in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> That's so, so fascinating. And it just thinks about the, the way that we look at work and the way that we look at human learning is just going to completely change. And I love that example of, you know, the, the throwing a rock to get a fruit out of a tree is the first, you know, augmentation of, of the human experience because it's, you know, you sit down with a laptop and you increase your intelligence 500 fold, you know, just because of that technology. So just about taking that to the next level, I guess. Yeah. And just to close the loop, you know, that's why we do the emerging technology conference FutureX Live Mm -hmm. and why we're going to be asking the question, not what can we do, but what should we do with this technology? Because if we go back to, you know, the example you gave where we picked up that first stone, Mm -hmm. you can use that stone to get more food, knock down the fruit, mm-hmm. or you can throw that stone at your friend's head and oh, take right. all of his fruit that he's collected, <laughs> exactly. right? And, and, you know, that's been the issue with our species from the beginning. Yeah. Every technology hasn't been good or evil, but it can be used in any way across that spectrum. Right. And now we've, as I said, we've created what many people think is the most powerful technology ever, you know, more powerful than nuclear uh, energy and nuclear bombs mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, if you think about our position in the world right now, we are not the biggest animal. We're not the strongest animal. We're not the fastest animal, but we dominate all other species on this planet right now. And that's because of our intelligence. Right. And yet here we are creating an intelligence that, as we've talked about, could supersede us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's that's kind of a a frightening, but also, I mean, you said there's a lot of bright sides to it. So hopefully we're doing more exciting work and there's not, not as many, you know, boring shopping trips, if anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think in general, you know, as I said, the example for our career is it should make for more exciting work. Mm -hmm. And I think, as I said earlier, this could potentially help us solve some of the biggest issues that we face, not just within you know, specific industries, but some of the biggest issues we face, you know, globally. Right. So just, I guess, kind of to close things out here, um, are there any uh, maybe books or any sort of things that, you know, us as students or anyone else kind of interested in AI tech getting into marketing or advertising right now, anything that you'd suggest uh, we read or kind of do to learn more? 
Yeah, I would um, recommend because again, so much is happening so quickly now that it's almost impossible to keep up with. One of the things that I do is I just take an um, a newsreader and really any of them, you know, whatever your favorite one is, mm-hmm. anything from Google News to you know, basically all the, the different news aggregators. And I would start to put in keywords around things like artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, and what you'll start to see is you'll start to get a feed from multiple sources, um, you know, put in artificial intelligence and marketing. You'll start yeah. to see these stories pop up. And then as you see things that are interesting, of course, the algorithms get smarter and more accurate and you'll get more and more information. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a key thing to do because literally, you know, breakthroughs are happening on a daily basis at this point. And, right. you know, like that Lexus commercial, I think yeah. is just, you know, a month or so old. And I'm sure mm-hmm. right now as we speak, people are doing some really in, interesting and maybe even industry changing things within marketing and artificial intelligence uh, at this very moment, right? So try to, to keep up with the latest news. Uh, I think those are, um, that's probably my number one recommendation. And my second one would be, you know, look for some of these free online courses just about general machine learning and artificial intelligence and just get a, a good overview of where, how things are working right now and where people think they're headed. Mm-hmm. Because just having that level of literacy will will pay off down the road, no matter what area you end up focusing in. Right. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, awesome, cool. John. I, again, thank you so much for coming on. This has been phenomenal talking to you and kind of <laughs> diving into these topics we talked about earlier a little more in depth. Um, um, yeah, I just want to thank you for, for coming on and we really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, no worries. Okay, well, take care. I hope you really enjoyed listening to that interview with John Rich, because I know that I enjoyed, I really loved uh, talking to him about the future of advertising and AI. I think there's some really cool things. And actually, you know, we could be living in a world where we're doing more exciting and actually even more creative work in the future. I don't know. What do you think, Trent? Yeah, well, John's such a nice guy and it was great to have him on the program. One of my favorite things about him is he does a really great job of taking really out there concepts that not a lot of people, especially me, can easily understand and contextualize them to make them very digestible, much like a salad, much like our podcast. And, um, (laughs) you know, I had a couple key takeaways from that, you know, I think first being like we had discussed earlier in this episode, you know, media is changing, advertising platforms are changing and changing how they're consumed. And similarly, I think marketing and jobs in general will continue to change how they're viewed and how they're performed um, in this new kind of AI um, led economy. Um, And I'm excited to see where that goes. I'm excited too for more creativity and more um, kind of strategic engagement with that kind of a job field. Um, Additionally, I think it's really fascinating to hear about, you know, Kurtzwell's idea of, you know, kind of increased returns and efficiency in an AI. And I think um, as well, it's just really interesting outlook to see um, where we're going as far as having potentially like cobots um, working alongside of us in our day-to-day jobs. Um, it was a great talk and um, excited to see where this goes. Of course. And it definitely makes you think that, you know, to be uh, keeping up with all these trends, you know, we definitely have to be 
uh, in the weeds a little bit, you know, honestly, and, you know, finding, finding new sources of information and data. And honestly, I thought that his point to the end of creating a curated news feed and really trying to find the things that are most interesting to you and, you know, relating those back to AI is one of the best ways to stay on top of the field, because like he said, things are just changing every day. Exactly. And you know how those are built, right? How? using AI. Again, it's just pervasive and it's everywhere and really excited to see where this goes. Um, to, you know, Thank you again for giving us a listen as we start off season two of Salad here. It's exciting to be back, exciting to be here with Cole. And um, go ahead, please give us a follow if you enjoyed this podcast. We're going to be back weekly. And give us a follow on Instagram too at salad underscore podcast. Um, we will be back here with uh, more general thoughts, rambling, insights, and an interview with the CEO of an up-and-coming agency here in the Valley um, and of just all-around great businessman and great man, Brad Casper. So we're excited to bring that to you next week. Um, you know, this is Trent signing off from Tempe tonight. And um, thank you. And this is Cole. And uh, have an adtastic week. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. See you again soon.